just want to unpack this, this, these verses from 2 Kings 6 and 7 and just how we can walk with God, some stuff that we can learn of how God brings about his purposes um, in and through our lives. And to set the context of uh, chapter 6 and 7 of 2 Kings, um, Samaria, the city, is under a siege. Basically, the city is completely locked in by a foreign army who's oppressing them. And the idea of the foreign army is, we can't break down your walls, but what we can do is stop food getting in to you, so that through famine, you'll be forced to surrender. And so the city is so under siege, that it says in chapter 6, it says, chapter 6 and verse 24... Says, uh, sometime later, Ben Hadadan, king of Abram, mobilised his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. Now, this is the extent of the famine in the city. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that people were basically buying a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver. So, people were basically buying a donkey's head for huge amounts of money because there's no food around. And a quarter of cab of seed pods for five shekels. Now, you might be saying, what's a quarter of cab of seed pods? And why were they paying five shekels for it? Basically, when a dove did its waste, it didn't digest all the seeds. And so they would buy the waste of a dove and then go through and find the seeds that were in in the waste, and that was being sold for five shekels. So that, that's the extent of the siege they're under. People were buying donkey's heads for exorbitant amounts of money and, and really basically rummaging through the waste to find pods. Um, the story then goes on to say there was one woman who said, look, we're going to die tomorrow. We'll eat my son today. We'll eat him today. And tomorrow we'll eat your son, Okay. So that's the extent as well of the siege. And then the king goes walking around the city to see what's actually happening. And the woman says, I want to tell you something, king, what's on my heart. We ate my son today. Now she's refusing to cook her son. And I think the king realises we are really, really under huge amounts of trouble here. People are turning to cannibalism. People are eating waste. People are eating donkey's heads. And then into that context, the prophet Elisha comes along and, and says this. He gives a prophetic promise. Elisha the prophet comes and says this. He says to the king, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seer, which is a, a, a measure of finest flour. This is in chapter 7, sorry, in verse 1. A, a seer of the finest flour will sell for a shekel. And two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now, he's saying that today you you basically can buy a donkey's head. That's going to cost you 80 shekels. But God's going to do something so remarkable tomorrow that you're going to be able to buy the finest flour for, for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Something so amazing is going to happen tomorrow. God's going to so break in that the best food is going to be available at the lowest amazing prices. And the officer, the guy who's working with the king, 
is next to the king. In verse 2 it says, The officer whose, whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, that's the prophet Elisha, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? Which is a logical question. Today we're eating dove dumb, and people are turning to cannibalism, and and people are buying a donkey's head. Now you're saying, this time tomorrow, the best food's going to be available at the lowest price. Even if God opened the heavens and rained down food, it's not possible, he's saying. How could this happen? And then Elisha says, you're going to see it with your own eyes, but you'll eat none of it. (laughs) And the prophetic promises of God always create tension between what is today's reality and what's tomorrow's promise. Jesus says, these are the signs that will follow those who believe. They'll open blind eyes, they'll open deaf ears, the lame will walk, the leper will be cleansed and the dead will be raised. Now that creates a bit of tension in you, doesn't it? Because Jesus is saying, what I've been doing, you'll be doing. How I've been, you'll be. Well, that creates tension because we're not seeing that. Or it might be you have prophetic promises over your life and you think, this is what my situation is right now and this is what God is promising. How's that possible? How's that possible? And we might say, one of our prophetic promises is, but God is saying, I'm going to be saving people in this community. Believing God for 40 men and women to come to know Jesus. And we're saying, God, we'd love to see it in the next couple of years. Why do we say the next couple of years? Because I guess if we just said in a lifetime, you would find that one or two a year. But we're saying, God, we're believing for something that's unprecedented in the church's history that the church has never, ever seen around 13, 14, 15, 20 people saved in a year in its history. And we're believing for another day when this will happen. We're believing for the church, not just us, but other local churches to have an impact on our community. To change the culture of an area over generations. To see crime go down and violence go down. And seeing people rescued out of all different types of circumstances. We're believing God for something. But when you have prophetic promises like we're going to be those who carry buckets of the presence of God. And outflow into the community. That produces a tension doesn't it? That tension of I don't feel adequate. I feel overwhelmed with fear. I feel intimidated. I don't know if I've got the answers to people's questions. It produces tension in us. Very much the tension that this guy is feeling in this story, the officer. You're saying this. This is impossible. It can't be done. Because the officer is bound by human logic. He's basically saying, if I don't understand how it could happen, then it can't happen. He's saying, even if God should open up the heavens and rain down food, which if he knew any of the stories, he would know actually God has actually been there. <laughs> actually, God has done that a few times. Um, um, God has rained down hev- from heaven quail, and he has made bread appear on the ground, and he has made water come out of rocks. So God is very able to bring food out of, out of places that are impossible. But the officer is saying, look, I don't understand how it can happen So it can't happen. He is bound by human logic, human wisdom, human understanding. 
We can say that about our generation. We can say, yeah, I love Jesus, but really, how can I really believe that my neighbour and my colleague and my family or my husband or my wife to come to know Jesus? I don't know how it can happen. The questions they're asking aren't even questions that look like they're interested in Jesus. I don't even see how it can happen. And because I don't see how it can happen, I don't believe it will happen. And faith has a different way of seeing Because I think God loves to puzzle us. He loves to speak again and again and again and again so you know it was his voice. Verses jump out from the Bible and you know he's speaking. And then you look at your circumstances and say, none of my circumstances are in line with the promise that God has given. How's it going to happen? And then if we're not careful, we can come to the conclusion, like the officer, because I don't understand then it can't be possible. And God's looking for something different. Because it's true. In the next thing we're going to look at is how God begins to answer this amazing prophetic promise that you're going to go from famine to abundance in one day. You're going to go from famine to abundance in just one day. And it's true that God is able to sovereignly do something. Remember in Numbers 11... The people were grumbling about their diet, moaning to Moses, saying, we want meat. (laughs) We want meat. And they're moaning and wishing they could go back to Egypt and wishing they could go back there. They've got illusions about what Egypt was like, that it was a land of abundance and they had cucumbers and garlic and meat. No, they didn't. (laughs) They, They were slaves. They owned nothing. They were at the beck and call of harsh taskmasters. And in Numbers 11, God makes a huge wind blow and he blows in enough quail, it says, that the meat came out of their nostrils. <laughs> you know, he basically feeds them and says, okay, you're going to moan, you're going to grumble, I'll give you meat, I'll make you so sick of me, you will be wishing you never asked for meat. But he also loves to weave human beings into the story, because he, he always wants a family. He, he, yeah, he can do it all on his own, like he did in Numbers 11, just blows in meat. Yeah, he could have opened the heavens and rained down food. He could have done exactly that, opened the floodgates. But he loves to weave you and me into his story. Because he loves to be a father who works with his kids. He loves us alongside us. There's something pleasurable about our kids being alongside us. There's something nice about yesterday, seeing Rochelle making meatballs and Clements rolling the meatballs. You know... Yeah, it, it could have been quicker without Clemence rolling the meatballs. <laughs> it took more patience for Clemence to be there rolling meatballs. <laughs> but there's something wonderful about kids alongside in the family. Something lovely about the way Jesus was. He takes a bunch of people, 12, 72, then there's 120, then there's a free fat. He takes weak people and says you wait here, the Holy Spirit's going to come and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in, in Samaria, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus you can do it all on your own you're very capable of appearing to a soul on the way to Damascus and appearing to, the, to a hard hard nosed religious zealot and converting him in a moment 
You can do it all, Jesus. You could just appear and say, I am God. It's very easy for you, but you love to work with us because you've always wanted a family. You've always wanted a people. Right from Genesis 1, Adam and Eve, you're going to subdue. You're going you're gonna to fill the earth. You be multiply. You be fruitful. You, I'm calling you. Jesus in Matthew 28, I'm giving you the great commission. You tell them what I told you. You be like me. You do what I did. He loves to work with people. He loves to work with us. And though he could just turn up gloriously and sovereignly to SC18 and Thamesmead and Abbey Wood and Belvedere and Woolwich and Plumpton, he could just turn up and just do it all himself. He loves to work through the church. He loves to work through you and me. He loves to, in one sense, God, you limit yourself to work through frail men and women like us who are sometimes doubting like Thomas and fearful and intimidated by men as Peter was or sometimes given to this or given to weak people, ordinary people. You limit yourself to work through them because you love to weave in your great purposes in the earth through people like us. God's got great purposes for the planet and the church is his is the vehicle of his kingdom to the earth. That's why we're people of purpose and people of destiny, because we've got caught up in God's great plan for the earth, his great heart for humanity, his great love for men and women, his desire to bring people home to the most amazing family there is on earth, with the most wonderful father there is on earth. And he uses you and me to be ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors, and so in this story in, in Kings, we find God using the most remarkable set of circumstances to fulfil the promise. And then it says, it now cuts to, in verse 3 of chapter 7, and it says this, Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. And they said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say, we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. If we stay here, we will die. Let's go over to the camp of the Armenians and surrender. If they spare us, we will live. If they kill us, we will die. Now, leprosy, that's the sickness of the skin disease, very, very contagious. They are not living in the city. They are outside of the city because they can't live with the people. And... They don't hear the prophetic promises of God. They're not in the room with the king. They're not in the room with the officer. They're not thinking... They don't know what God's about to do. And God's going to weave in, through these people, a breakthrough that impacts the whole city. Now what's interesting is here is... These four people have an honest assessment of their situation. They look at their situation and say... If we stay here, we're going to die. If we just do nothing and stay outside the city, we're going to die. If we go back into the city and go back to probably where they came from, we're going to die because the famine is there. And suddenly they entertain a risky thought. Our only option is to do something that is completely illogical, completely counterintuitive, but if we don't do this crazy thing, 
we're just going to die. If we don't do the thing that seems to be the most terrifying and the most risky and the most dangerous and the most counterintuitive thing, we are just going to die. We are just going to stay here and if we do what we've always done, we're going to get what we've always got, which is hungrier and hungrier and hungrier until we die. Sometimes, and I think probably New Year just is an opportunity sometimes to ask ourselves serious questions. It, it just... It's just one of those times of year where we feel that the, the year is blank and there's a fresh opportunity in front of us. And it's an opportunity to almost ask ourselves, like the four lepers did, if I just think like I did last year and do what I've always done... I'm slowly dying. <laughs> Sometimes we have to, we stop at this time of year and say, if I just continue in unforgiveness, like I did last year, if I just allow that offence, however terrible it was, to go unforgiven for another year, I'm, I'm dying. Because what's amazing about the four lepers is they are probably the lowest of the low and yet they're not victims. They stop and say, we haven't got a lot of choices and the choice that we do have looks pretty hideous but we've got that choice. <laughs> they're not victims. And, and they honestly assess the situation and say, we are dying. We've got to do something different. And sometimes we can just stop at this time of year and say, could it be that all this happened and yet I've got a choice to forgive? <laughs> There's something I can do. I can let them off the hook. I can lay down the right for justice. I can let go of the anger. Is there another mindset? Because sometimes it can be... We're, we've gone through the year and we've actually financially we haven't done that well it's been tough and then you look and you think oh God I've never really honoured you with my, my money <laughs> I've never given and the Bible says honour oh, me with the first fruits bring the first fruits into the storehouse bring it, bring it in trust me and we think, that's such a counterintuitive move. Because I'm doing the maths and the maths are not adding up. But I'm not doing very well financially. But if I start to give, I could have nothing. And there comes that moment of thinking, but if I just do what I've always done. <laughs> if, I just, if we just do what we've always done, is anything ever going to change? And then there's that step of faith. Oh, God, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to take a baby step of giving. Just a small token to get me on the move. <coughs> it's 
And sometimes we take steps and we don't see all the maths, okay? These four lepers don't see the connection between what God's doing. They're just entertaining a new thought. If we don't do something new, we're going to get what we've always got and we're going to die. Sometimes we don't get it all logically in our head. Some things we do, we forgive, we get set free. We begin to give and our heart gets unlocked financially and we create a spiritual dynamic which actually does cause God to give everything we need so we're able to be generous. There are some things that add up. There are some things we do and we don't know what we're doing, we're just taking the next step. Uh, In 1995, uh, I went to a prayer meeting and a lady stood up and said, I've got a prophetic word for you, Jamie, you are going to marry. Which, as a 25-year-old, meant a lot. (laughs) I wasn't going out with anybody and nothing was looking like it was ever going to work out. And it was a smallish church. So that meant a lot to have that prophetic word. Um... About six, seven, eight months later, uh, the leader of the church was going to France to do a French outreach team evangelism in France. And I was making promotional videos uh, um, for churches to promote different things about church life. And, And he said, do you want to come to France and make a video about the French outreach team? And my initial reaction was, yeah, okay. And then something else kicked in, which was um, my only trip abroad was I went to Calais when I was 11. (laughs) And uh, um, that trip didn't go pretty much to plan. I spent all the money on a a present for my brother and only had a baguette all day. So my thoughts about going to France were still impacted by something that had happened 14 years before. And uh, so I thought, I know what. I'll tell you to David, I'm too busy. That's what really was going on. I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified about going. I I don't know the language. Um, I'm going to have to come back on my own. You're going to go there, David, and you're going to go somewhere else. And I was was just absolutely riddled with fear, to be honest with you. So I I did what you meant to do. I made up a story. No. Because it's, it's hard, isn't it, to say, actually, David, I'd love to go, but I'm terrified. Now, you don't say that, do you? You say, oh, David, I'm so busy at the moment. There's so many things on. I've got so many deadlines on. And just don't think I can make it. And David Pike, who led the church, was the most gentle guy I know. Turned around and said, Jane, I think you need to go. I've never heard him say anything like that before. You know, what? I've got no... What? I have to go. So, because he said, yeah, you need to go... I thought, okay, I need to go. I won't make up any more stories. (laughs) My stories haven't got me out of this one. (laughs) And so, I go to France. I meet the worship leader. We talk about cinema. A year later, we're married. (laughs) But, I didn't, I didn't, you don't, it wasn't in my logic. It wasn't, I know what, I'll do what I've never done before. I'll say yes and go abroad and maybe I'll meet something. It wasn't even even a possibility. It was just the next thing. It was just a leader asked me. I tried to get out of it through lying and I took a step and God says, okay, now I've got, I'm now going to work the circumstances out for you and I'm going to fulfill that prophetic promise. And that's what we find with these lepers. They're just having an honest moment. (laughs) 
If we just do what we've always done, we're going to die. If we do something we've never done, who, who knows? They might kill us, but they might spare us. They might, they might put us to the sword, but they might feed us. A year ago, we had a North Kent Community Church here, and Tim and I were talking about things to put into the programme. And one of the things we thought was we need to get out into our community. We've got to start doing something in the community. We've got to start doing something. And one of the things they were able to equip us with was, was treasure hunting. Now, honestly, I didn't want to put it in the programme. And I was designing the programme. <laughs> and when Alan Cass, who was leading the team on the Friday night, said, you know, it might rain tomorrow... There was a song that came in my heart, which was, let it rain, let it rain, open up the floodgates once again, God. There was not, no, I'm standing, because this is the opportunity to go to the community, because I'm a courageous, bold leader, and we're going to go. No, it was, let it rain, God, I don't want to go. And you know, I really believe if it had rained, we would never have gone, ever. Because sometimes you, you have to do something that terrifies you to get something that you've never had before. Because there are people, even in the year that we've had of going out, who have been touched and a man got healed and a lady got a house and people got blessed and people heard a bit about more about Jesus and people who never would have had that had we just did what we've always done before. Just God is good, and he takes us where we're at, shaking, quaking in our boots, kicking and screaming, I don't want to do it! But if you don't do what you've never done, you'll get what you, you know, you'll, if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. You have to ask yourself, if, if it's true what the percentages are at the moment, 30% of the people who live in our area are open to Jesus and open to being inv- invited to church. are completely closed to Jesus and completely closed to an invitation to come along to a local church. And so we have to say, God, if we we just wait in our walls for them to come, the 30% will come, but the 70% won't. Oh, we've got to have a new thought. The case, an honest assessment. It's not an overwhelming terror of the generation we live in, because I think the generation we live in is huge opportunities. People are very open to be prayed for in the streets. So the percentage of people willing to have a spiritual experience has gone up. The percentage of people who are open to come to church has gone down. So what does the church need to do? Have a fresh thought. If we stay here and just do what we've always done, yeah, we'll, we'll grow. We'll grow, and we'll see those 30% who are open or had church experience they'll come but the 70% will just go off the edge remember Hudson Taylor the missionary to China said he woke up in a cold sweat when he saw he saw the Chinese going off the edge into eternity without God thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of men and women just dropping off the edge dropping off the edge dropping off the edge so he said I've got to go it has to burn in our heart that if the church doesn't go to them, there's a lost eternity without God. 
And we can say, like we said at the beginning, but God, you could just turn up sovereignly. And he does. He turns up wonderfully in people's dreams. For men and women who have nobody around them who know Jesus, he'll come to them in a dream. And then someone else might come alongside and say, actually, I want to explain that dream to you. He wants to work with us. So we have to ask ourselves, is there a new counterintuitive thing to reach the 70%? And I think treasure hunting is one of them, but that's clearly not the whole thing. And normally in vision Sundays you come, we've got the answer. But I think sometimes it's just good to come to God and say, this is the situation. What's your wisdom, Jesus? What are your ideas? Since you are so creative and have such a myriad of ideas, what are you thinking? What are you praying? How do you see the community? What are your ideas? And so it's being desperate enough to ask the question, what am I going to do? And then it says in verse 5, at dusk they got up and went to the camp of the, Ama- of the Ameans. They took action. They have a fresh assessment of their world and their lives and where they are and what will happen if they do nothing. They come to a conclusion that we're going to do something that's risky and new and out of the box and we're going to take a chance and go to the enemy and see what happens. And then at dusk, they get up and they go. And it has to be that with us. When we've come to the conclusion that actually my issue is I'm not forgiving, there has to be a moment at dusk, I forgive. If it's our conclusion is, I've got an issue around money, I'm terrified about finances, I've never really given, at dusk, I'm giving. There has to be that moment where it's put into action, where we say, actually, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something. Even if I'm doing it, quaking in my boots, going treasure hunting, I'm doing something. I'm taking some action. I'm going to start. And sometimes it can just simply be, like I said with the story of meeting Rochelle, we just do anything in the local church that just gives us some form of momentum. We might think, I don't know how this great thing's going to happen, but at the moment I'm doing nothing. So I'm just going to start and do something. At dusk, I'm going to do something. And I'm going to see how God weaves that together to lead to that. But often we want that, but we need the process as well. There needs to be that, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to start small... And just take a step and let God weave that into that. So at dusk, they take fresh action. Desperation, repentance must look like something. It can't just be theoretical. It has to be something in action. It has to be we do something. Maybe sometimes we're scared of. Like the story of the guy I've told you before who was terrified about answering the phone. And his intentional decision was to always answer the phone. Until the fear got broken. There has to be fresh action. Because if it remained theoretical, those four lepers would have stayed outside the city and just died. It needed to be, it needed to be a, a practical response. But then it says in verse 5, When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. <laughs> For the Lord had caused the Arameans, to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their their lives. 
So these guys are taking a step that's totally counterintuitive, and they find as they reach there, God's gone in front of them, and that God's made a loud noise that they've interpreted as a the army that's come to uh, uh, to attack them, and they've run away and fled, and they've left everything. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents, and ate and drank. I mean, you just gotta gotta get into the story. These guys are starving to death. And they've, they've walked across the camp and they honestly, realistically, four lepers are not going to be welcomed with open arms by the enemy. The, the army's not going, oh, we've been waiting for you. Come and have some wine and some bread and some food. We love lepers, don't we, guys? Yeah, come on in. Bring your skin out. Oh, leprosy, we love it. <laughs> That's never going to happen, is it? They're outside the city for a reason. No one wants to catch leprosy. Even their own family don't want them in the city. Let alone the enemy. So they're surprised when they're in the tent saying, can you believe it? We've got food and there's silver. We can eat and we can drink and there's clothes. And and they begin to hide it thinking, "Oh, oh, we're wealthy, we're wealthy, we've got more than we could ever dream of, ever in the whole of our lives. And then they, they returned and entered another tent, and there was stuff there, and they took things and from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. So they reach there and then realise everybody else is eating dove stuff and eat and they're dying. We can't keep this good news to ourselves. We've got to go and tell them. It's amazing how goodness and mercy meet you in the moment of your obedience. Psalm 23 says that he'll prepare a table in front of your enemies and goodness and mercy so often catches up on with you when you do the thing that you were most scared about. When you, you say, actually, we've said those illustrations, I will forgive, I will give, I will begin to serve, I will take some action, I will do that thing that's terrifying me but I know God's asking me to do it. I will have that new thought, do that new thing. And you go there thinking it's all you and you're on your own. And you step out and he says, ta-da, I'm going to meet you there. I'm going to meet you right here. In that place where you feel vulnerable. In that place where you feel so nervous and feel so intimidated. And feel it's so impossible. I'm going to meet you here. Jamie, when you, you're so terrified of going to France and you're terrified of that foreign country and you're so terrified of that train journey home, but actually goodness and mercy are going to meet you there. I'm going to do something there because you're, doing, you're giving me something to work with. You're giving me something to work with in, in those moments of risky obedience, taking that chance, doing that new thing. Goodness and mercy will meet you there. And suddenly you're feasting on something. Because suddenly you've got a testimony. We were generous 
with our time or we were generous with our finances, we were generous with our resources. We began to take out what we think we didn't have and realise we had an abundance and found he met us there. He provided for me there. And when I forgave that person and let them off the hook, I found such joy and liberty. There was like a feast in my belly of freedom as I realised the gates were unlocked and I could walk free. I took that step, that risk, and I, I don't know, I went treasure hunting and I was terrified. I went with the team and I didn't feel I did much, but I saw him do things and I had a chance to say something and it was so small, but I've never said anything in my life before. God can use me. There's wonderful moments when we pray for the guy's shoulder and the first time we prayed, nothing happened and we went and saw him again in September and he says, it's better. And then we saw him again in October, it's still better. And you think, wow, this feels a little bit like the New Testament, God. This guy has come out and he's better and he's saying thank you. We're good news. We're taking baby steps and you're meeting us there and it's such a feast. It's such a wonderful feast in those moments of walking with, with God. I just want to say this, that the ultimate feast, if we were saying what really is the feast that he lays before in front of our enemies, and what really is the feast, the real feast is loving and knowing and being loved by, by Jesus. He really is the feast. That liberty that comes and you say, I've tried to do life on my own, I've tried to organise it all on my own, I've tried to be the boss of my own life, and I'm just slowly dying. I can't go back to my old life, as it were, uh, but I, I, I can't just stay here, just trying to run it all myself. I'm going to trust that going to you, Jesus, I'm going to lay it all on the line and see you meet me there. And there comes a kind of moment when you say, God, I'm coming to you, all of me, <laughs> at dusk, I'm coming to you. And it can feel like you're dying because you think, will he be as good as people say? Will he meet my needs? Will he let me down? Is he faithful? Is he everything he said he would ever be? But if I just do it the way I've always done it, I'm going to die. So I'm taking a step at dusk. I'm coming to you, God, and I'm trusting my life to you and I'm yielding to you. And you find in that moment he becomes a feast. He becomes a feast. I just want to finish with this. In verse 9, this is a day of good news. We are keeping it to ourselves. Listen, I, I just want to say this. Evangelism is not something like a project or a program that we add on to our Christianity. Telling people good news is not something that we, we say, right, once a month on a Saturday, we're good news people. <laughs> And we're just going to add that on. It's just another thing we add on to the other things we add on. It's rather this. We are so full of something that is so good, we can't keep it to ourselves. They're saying, this is a day of good news. We're, we can't keep it to ourselves. My belly is so full of the richness of his goodness and mercy and love and faithfulness and kindness and compassion and grace. He's an unchanging, wonderful, strong tower. He's good and loving and kind. He's such an amazing father. His love is so warm and his goodness is so real. My belly is full of the goodness and mercy that has been following me all the days of my life. Well, I'm not keeping this to myself. I'm not keeping it to myself. 
This is good news. And I think the first calling on every believer for 2015 is in the camp of the goodness of God, get absolutely full of his goodness and feast on his love and feast on his beauty and feast on his kindness and feast on his capacity to work all things together for good and feast on all of his promises and his love and tenderness and trust him and yield to him and when you hear his voice be like a sheep that says yeah papa I'm doing it yeah dad I'm doing it yeah I'm good. I've heard your voice it's yes from me I'm all in I love you so much you've got all of my heart I'm not arguing with you anymore and get full and full and full and full. And then people will begin to ask you and ask, ask, ask me, what's, what's up with you? What's up with you? Well, I'm not keeping it to myself, but I, I know about food that you don't know about. I know about a really, really good restaurant <laughs> where the food is so wonderful and it's so good. And they'll be drawn in almost by a... a a, if you can say it, an evangelism of jealousy. What have you got that I don't have? Ask us to stand and to pray for us. And... Yeah.